0: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a special guest with us today that I have been wanting to have on for quite a while to talk about this topic. And he also has a new book about it, so this is like really, really great. His name is Luke Burgess, and he teaches principled entrepreneurship, which is an awesome topic to be teaching, and business at the Catholic University of America. He speaks regularly about the education of desire. He studied business at NYU Stern and philosophy and theology at a pontifical university in Rome. He is the author of the book, Wanting the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life, which is what we're going to talk about today. And he lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife, Claire, and her dog. Luke, why is it her dog and not their dog in your description that I pulled off the internet?
1: Oh, well, it's it's actually her cat, not her dog. Oh, my and goodness. You got to change your website, man. Is that what it says? Yeah. <laughs> I'm no, pretty it's, sure it's that's her, where I got it from. Yeah. It, it, it's her cat. Yeah. Her cat, Clotilde. And she, for a very long time, the entire time that we were dating actually, wouldn't let me anywhere near her without hissing at me. So that has been a labor of love for me to get this cat to uh, accept me as her uh, adopted (laughs) father. And now Claire and I are married. So it's even more important that we do that so we can have a long, happy life together. How's it going? (laughs) It's Actually, we've uh, turned a corner just in the last few months, to be honest.
0: Oh, well, that's good. I don't know. Maybe you can uh, write a follow-up book on the uh, mimetic desire and pets. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can get a cat to want to be petted by you. That is a massive accomplishment.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I have a similar situation with a uh, cat of ours who does like me from time to time, but usually she just is like, yeah, get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, anyway, this is uh, not a topic about uh, mimetic desire and cats, but it was a fun way to start. Luke, you've written a book, that I listened to about a month ago, as of when we were recording this. And I have to say, I've read a lot of books about mimetic theory. I've read articles. I've talked to people who are experts and very familiar with it. And I often find myself, and I've heard this from other people, that when people talk about mimetic desire, they either kind of go one or two ways. They think it's just about, well, yeah, of course, everybody has jealousy and envy. And like, what else is there to learn? Or they're just like, oh my gosh, you're talking way over my head. And I don't understand how on earth this has anything to do with, you know, global politics and a whole host of other things. And we can all relate to how jealousy and envy are influencing, but it's more than just that. And your book, which is called Wanting, is probably the first book that I've read where I can see the application in everyday life for me, not just as a person who's interested in how do I analyze what's going on in the world today? How do I analyze my relationships per se, but like, how do I analyze and understand my own desires, and what to do about it, which I think is a unique aspect of your book is the what to do about this. So I want to start off with one just like, thank you for writing a book that I I can sort of understand. And second, I want to start off with asking you, what got you into this topic? Is this just, you know, something of an interest? Was it because of business? Like, where did you get into this? And then of course, you know, deep enough to want to even write about it.
1: Hmm. Well, I sort of intuited some mimetic stuff early on as an entrepreneur, even before that, as I was competing fiercely for internships while well, I was at NYU and on Wall Street and then in the startup world, I intuited that there was something, some social factor that was heavily influencing a lot of my decision-making and that I was doing a lot of things for these bad social reasons. So I intuited it at that point and had been thinking a lot about my motivations and My desires, without ever having had any contact with René Girard, it wasn't until I went on a silent spiritual retreat after I'd stepped away from one of my companies and was kind of in a transition period, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I had a retreat director who I didn't know this, but he was a Girardian, was intimately familiar with René Girard, and he and I would meet together once a day on this seven-day silent retreat, and he would assign scripture passages, things for me to read and meditate on for the day. The rest of the day, total silence, except for this 30-minute meeting that I had with this guy once a day. And the very first day of the retreat, he assigned to me the woman caught in adultery from John. And I read it, came back to him the next day, and he said, well, what did you get out of that passage? What are you seeing? And we talked, I had a couple little insights here and there related to my spiritual life. But I didn't realize that what he was trying to get me to see was the mimetic mechanism that everybody in the story, except for the Lord, was caught up in, and the scapegoat mechanism. And I think we'll probably talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But he was trying to get me to see that on my own without just having me read Girard. He wanted to try to understand the role that Christ played in that scene. Then he sent me back with the same story every day for the next five days. And I'm whispering to my buddies who were on this retreat with me and they were getting new readings every day. And I'm like, what the heck am I doing wrong here? I felt like the, those Kung Fu movies where the kid has to go to the top of the mountain and then like the <laughs> Kung Fu master like sends him down with some task. And then he, he goes back up and he like, he can never do the task right. Right. Just want you to paint a white fence, right? <laughs> exactly. So that's how I felt. Like, what is this old priest trying to get me to see in this passage? And it wasn't until the, I did this the whole week. And then at the end of the week, we talked about it, and he unfolded the sort of mimetic mechanisms at work in that particular passage and told me that I need to read Gerard's book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. And I devoured that book. I was up all night. I read the whole thing. And that was the moment when I realized that mimetic theory had the answers I was looking for to explain some of the things going on in my personal life, that it also was highly explanatory in terms of social things, things that I saw going on in the world. And on top of all that, helped me understand Christianity at a much deeper level and some of the things that were going on in, in my own spiritual life. So that that was my introduction. And then that took me on a very, very long 10-year journey where I, I dove deeply into it. And I saw the same things that you did in A lot of the books that I'd read about mimetic theory, it was very theory heavy. Mm -hmm. And I often had a hard time making the connections to lived reality and to my personal life. And that's why it was so important for me to do that in this book.
0: Yeah. You know, as you're saying that it's very theory laden in a lot of those books, there have been a few that I've come across that are sort of like mimetic desire explaining things in scripture or theologically or whatever, but it's not an overt, hey, here's how do you connect those two. Mm. The one book I'm thinking of right now is A Farewell to Mars by Brian Zond, who Mm -hmm. uh, goes over, you know, basically patriotism and nationalism. And, you know, there's a strongly mimetic thread to his book there. Yeah. So the book itself came for me, your book came for me at a time where I'm also thinking through a lot of like my own desires, and so forth. And so maybe it also just kind of hit me at the right time. So yeah, it's been helpful to do that. There's one feature of your book is that there's these 15 tactics. Could you describe, you know, what those are aimed at doing?
1: Yeah, you know, the tactics are things that I have done in my own life to try to counteract the negative consequences of mimesis. So Mimetic desire can be, it's a neutral thing. It can be positive, it can be negative, but very often it plays out in negative ways. It leads to rivalry, it leads to misery and and vocational confusion. So I was trying to, I've spent a lot of time over the last 10 years doing little things, implementing little mindful exercises and making decisions about how I live my life that will help me to counteract some of those negative forces. So I list 15 of them in the book. And, you know, my goal is not for that to be some kind of a, you know, a guide that people should strictly follow. It's to show through my own lived experience, some of the ways that I've been able to apply this in my life, just to help people make connections in their own, right? Mm -hmm. Just to give some examples with the hope that some people that work in education or people that work in law or people that work in politics be able to sort of see reflected in, in my own tactics things that they can do to apply this to their own lives
0: so for listeners not familiar with mimetic theory or mimetic desire i think there might be a handful of other words that you know surround that word would you give a kind of an overview like what's the elevator it's not really a pitch what's
1: the elevator explanation of what this phenomenon is so gerard realized that imitation was at the fundamental basis of of human behavior and of human culture. And it plays a far more pervasive role than anybody had really acknowledged before. The classic philosophers like Plato and Aristotle saw that imitation played a critical role in art, but they really only saw imitation as representation, that, you know, we imitate art or language, facial expressions cultural norms, they didn't really grasp that imitation goes so deep in the human person that we imitate even the very desires of other people. And it was that kind of internal aspect of imitation that Girard put his finger on. And he saw that as a key to understanding everything from original sin to conflict and rivalry in our modern day society to the root cause of violence, where you have people in a rivalrous way imitating other people who they come to see as obstacles in their own path, whatever they're looking for, it could be power, it could be a person, a romantic interest, whatever, begin to see other people as enemies. And this eventually leads to violence, which you know Gerard articulated as a scapegoat mechanism That is kind of has been a recurring pattern throughout human history with with some exceptions, notable one being the crucifixion of Christ. And the mimetic theory starts with this key insight of mimetic desire being at the heart of human relations, so fundamental to it that it is addressed specifically in the Ten Commandments, in the the Tenth Commandment itself. It's been there sort of from the very beginning, at least with, you know, since sin entered the world. And he traced the implications of this insight into mimetic desire through culture and saw that this provided a tremendously explanatory function for conflict and violence. And many of the kind of cultural institutions that we have, everything from government to, I mean, pretty much all of our institutions that we have, have been born as out of a response to preventing conflict and violence that has arisen through mimetic desire. So it, that's very complicated. And it's mm-hmm. not easy to go from like the fundamental insight of mimetic desire to wait a second, you know, imitating desire leads to conflict and rivalry and this mechanism of, of extreme violence that preserves society. And that's why Girard takes a while to understand. And, you know, I try to cover the whole process in the first half of my book but I've always found that it's really important to just kind of start with mimetic desire and try to understand what that is and to be able to see it in ourselves. And then hopefully we can draw the thread through to other things that are going on.
0: Well, you know, what's nice in your book is you do start out with something that people can connect to. You don't just start out explaining a theory. You start out with conversation you had with Peter Thiel, some of the things that happened in your life with your startup. And we, at least I could, as a listener slash reader of the book, understand, oh, I know what something like that is like. Like, I can understand what you were experiencing to at least some degree. I can understand what Peter Thiel was explaining to you that you're recounting in the book to some degree. And it's like, oh, yeah, I do see that happening in my life or in the lives of those around me. And then you get into the explanation as to, well, here's the underlying phenomenon, all the stuff you just said. I think you did a great job connecting it to something that's real rather than just this theory that's out there that mm-hmm. might or might not explain what's happening in the world mm-hmm. because we can identify it in ourselves. One thing of note that I've often wondered about the idea of mimetic theory, is like if we're all driven or influenced heavily by the desire of others, what does that say about free will? Now, I realize that could be a whole you know 12-hour discussion here, but like, how do you handle the idea that perhaps... Like a lot of people are going to push back about that. They're going to be like, well, no, I choose what I desire, right? And it's not quite that simple, but human agency, individual agency, how does
1: that factor in? This is a both-and answer for me. You know, we have freedom, and I believe we have free will, but we don't have absolute freedom. I mean, that's something that only God has. So our our freedom is relative and in relationship to God's freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the problem in which we see in the very beginning of of scripture is an assertion of our own autonomy and and our own freedom over and against god's so i do think that you know the answer to this question comes down to a right understanding of freedom it's not absolute freedom and you know we all have to kind of understand you know that there are many different layers of freedom there's physical freedom there's psychological freedom there's spiritual freedom and sometimes we can get stuck at one of those layers and not sort of see the the nuances in it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that seeing that, you know, we're not these atomistic individuals and that we are social creatures and that, you know, it's just as important that I defend the freedom of my neighbor and the freedom of the other, even Mm -hmm. if they're saying or doing things that I might not necessarily like. Right. Like that's part of what this is all about. It's understanding the ways in which we are connected the personalism with which we should approach other people as human persons with dignity and free will of their own and part of I think what gerard is is getting at here at a fundamental level is the rivalry that he talks about so often is us or me wanting to assert my will over and against another person and there's this battle of wills that that plays out and one of our challenges, I mean, it's a political challenge. It's a challenge in our economy is to try to understand like, what is it that, is this really just a zero sum game that we're all playing here? Is it just a will to power or do we have a responsibility to help each other want what's, you know, true, good and beautiful? Mm -hmm. Is there common goods that we can desire together that are goods that are in abundance that, you know, we don't have to fight over So I think there's a deep connection here between freedom and between order and, you know, what is our greatest end? And one of the challenges we live in a society right now, at least in America, where there's great disagreement over what this is all about. (laughs) And um, so I think like putting freedom in context is really the key there.
0: Yeah, I like that answer. I think it there is a sense in which we think of freedom as, you know, kind of an either or like we either have it or we don't and it's all or nothing. And that it is in the context of our relationship to God, our relationship to others, and, you know, our nature as humans, the effect of sin, all of those things are, are certainly factors. And you kind of mentioned, like, we are, at the beginning of your answer, it was something like, you know, we are in, I would say, in this together. You didn't say it that way. We're social people. We're a social animal, if you will. And a lot of people look at, you know, people like libertarians or or individualists as like atomistic individualists. And it's not quite that simple. You know, the, for me, a libertarian order really does account for how do we do things together in ways that are peaceful, in ways that are non-rivalrous, non-violent. So there's an important element to your answer, I believe, in, in that we are social creatures. Yeah. One element of your book actually features advertising and business quite a bit in that there are several examples of how advertisers have, I want to say, the first word that comes to mind is duped the public, but I don't know if that's quite the right way, but there are definitely campaigns against getting people to desire certain things. So there's probably a handful from the book. I don't know if you remember them, because you probably wrote this book like a year and a half ago. What stands out to you as a good example of how someone who knows how to manipulate the
1: desires of others have actually done so on a large scale? Well, I'll give you the example that, that is from the book. And, it, you know, it's an example from about 100 years ago, but I think it's extremely relevant to today's world. You know, I tell the story of Eddie Bernays, who's the nephew of Sigmund Freud and kind of considered the father of what we now know as modern day PR. Back then he called it propaganda. And he was hired by one of the largest tobacco companies in the world to try to get women to smoke. Because this was shortly after World War I, in the, in the '20s, it was totally taboo for women to smoke in public, but most of the men were addicted to cigarettes because they were included in the rations and in the war. And what he did is he, you know he very closely sort of tied the campaign to get women to smoke to this notion of freedom. And he orchestrated this large-scale event on Easter Day uh, It was a 1929 Easter Day Parade where he planted a bunch of women in the parade that had Lucky Strike cigarettes hidden in their their coats. And on his cue, they, very attractive women, kind of models of desire, they pulled out the cigarettes in total defiance of all of the taboos in public, started smoking, and, you know, had this whole campaign, had, you know, New York Times reporters sort of lined up, ready to take statements. And he said that they were smoking torches of freedom. And that this was an act of defiance and that they, you know, they should be equal to men. And you know, the next day, Torches of Freedom was just plastered as a headline in every paper with these women walking down Fifth Avenue, you know, smoking their cigarettes. And they served as very powerful models for the rest of the women in America. And it worked. Over the next 10, 20 years, smoking really took off among women. The thing is, that was a total scene that was set meticulously by Eddie Bernays. There was nothing spontaneous about that scene whatsoever. He orchestrated every single aspect of it, including giving the women just very explicit directives about when they were to pull the cigarettes out and start smoking, what they were to say, if they were questioned by any kind of interviewers. And they had no idea. The whole thing just appeared sort of spontaneous. He's like a magician, like an illusionist. And they all sort of thought, or at least the women that picked up smoking from seeing this act on TV, all very much thought that what they had witnessed was this kind of spontaneous free act, when in fact, it was not. In fact, it was the product of meticulous planning and frankly, manipulation. So he understood very well the way that desire, the way that psychology works. So I think that we still see this kind of thing playing out all of the time, sometimes even in the name of freedom. So I mean, this goes back to what we were just talking about, right? Like how free were those women? Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah if you can evaluate yourself, you realize that you've made choices that you're like, oh, wait, that somebody influenced me there. Somebody influenced my desire by giving me something to desire. So mimetic desire isn't as simple as saying we desire things that other people have. It's also the idea that we desire what others desire. And I think that's, for me, that's been the sort of hurdle to get over when I first started encountering this idea. It's like, well, of course, advertisers want us to want things. But when they demonstrate what others desire, it's somehow even more powerful. And that's really, it's almost scary to some extent. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, you know, as you point out in the book, like you can model good desires for
1: other people. Sure. Yeah, so it's not just wanting what other people want because that can happen by complete coincidence, right? Metic desire is wanting something because somebody else wants it. So there's that element of causality there. And you go deep enough with Gerard, he starts speaking about metaphysical desire. So it's not a desire for any particular thing at all. It's a desire for being itself. And that's why, so it's it's the people, not the objects. So desire is not object-oriented at all. And you know, when you're caught up in a mimetic rivalry, or you have a powerful enough mimetic model, the objects can change. They can change by the year, they can change by the month, they can change by the day. Because what matters is the person and the person's desire. Because the imitation is of the desire of the person. So, you know, if one year they're working at a certain company and then the next year they change industries, as their desire changes or their perceived desire changes, and that's where things get really tricky, so does ours. Mm. Because it's the desire that matters and not the thing itself. So this is really... I think the most important insight that Gerard had is that desire is not object-oriented.
0: Mm.
1: It sort of moves through models and is, and is directed by the models themselves. Is that an explanation as to why
0: we don't see Jeff Bezos, at least you and me, don't see Jeff Bezos as
1: a rival, but we do see colleagues as rivals? So, you know, this is discussed at length in the book, and, and it's a distinction that Gerard makes between the kinds of models that we imitate. And almost all of this happens unconsciously, subconsciously. There are two kinds of models. One is external to our worlds. Gerard called these external mediators of desire. So people that we don't have any possibility of coming into contact with, not just physical contact. I mean, social contact, right? Yeah. Existential contact. I can never become their rival. And you know, for me and Jeff Bezos, at least right now, Unless I start a trillion-dollar company, you know that's 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 his relation to me. <laughs> the other kind of model is internal to our worlds, and Gerard calls these internal mediators of desire, and they seem to be far more important to us. and In a way, our attention is kind of a function of, in many cases, our proximity to other people. You know, I think this is one of the reasons why the word neighbor comes up constantly in scripture, for instance, it's used multiple times just in the Ten Commandments alone. What is it about the neighbor? Why is the neighbor so important? Because the neighbor is an internal mediator of desire for us. Mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos is not. The external mediators, we're in relationship with them mm-hmm. in a totally different way. And in many cases, external mediators of desire are, are more They are more out in the open. We're typically not ashamed to talk about some positive role model that we have. Yeah. You know, we can kind of watch them in a non-threatening way. We can watch the Kardashians or, you know, we can look at what Elon Musk is doing or saying and and want to emulate him. But not so much with, you know, somebody that's a little too close to us for comfort because the lines begin to be blurred. And, you know, we start kind of, you know, Freud's narcissism with small differences, right? We begin to notice them as a threat to our own desires, because we have the possibility of competing with those people. And that's not the case with the external mediators. So
0: let's talk about scapegoating a little bit more. I know a lot of people know what it means. It comes out in sort of everyday conversation a lot more, at least in Christian circles that I'm in. But how does the scapegoating
1: mechanism actually work in mimetic theory? The scapegoating mechanism comes into play when a society or community, even a small group, is in what Girard calls a, a mimetic crisis, where there's been a, a, a real loss of difference. And it's hard to tell, you know, who's a model to, to who. And it's kind of, you know, a situation which Hobbes calls a war of, of all against all. Total mimetic crisis where everybody is viewing everybody else as, as a threat, as a rival. There's kind of mass confusion, mass undifferentiation. And Girard says that throughout history, the way that these crises have been resolved, the way that groups have saved themselves from self-destruction is by finding a scapegoat, uh, typically somebody who is, uh, uh, is, is easy to single out in some way, could be because they're, uh, they're weak, they're deformed, they, they have slightly different opinions, they've broken some taboo. And the group unites against this, this person. Um, sometimes the scapegoat is an, is an entire group of people, but unites against the scapegoat. And in the act of doing so, in the act of, of uniting against the scapegoat and expelling the scapegoat, uh, killing the scapegoat, uh, the group is united and finds some actual catharsis and solidarity and, and unity And group identity is strengthened at the expense of the scapegoat. So this goes all the way back to an ancient ritual in in Israel, where there was the high priest quite literally symbolically transferred the sins of the people onto a goat uh, once a year at Yom Kippur. And then the people collectively, and that's really important, the people collectively drove that goat out into the desert. And they were, you know, their sins went with the goat. And they experienced that moment of catharsis and unity. And, you know, we just see that playing out in so many different ways from, you know, from cancel culture to, you know, our, our politics today seems like a scapegoating machine. Yeah. Um, you know, Caiaphas, you know, who Rene Girard kind of ironically called the, you know, the the, the greatest politician in history. Uh, he didn't mean it as a compliment. I mean, what he meant was that Caiaphas so clearly recognized the utility of the scapegoat mechanism to quell societal unrest and chaos that he, he sort of knew immediately that, that, you know, sort of the, the, the thing that had to be done was that, you know, Jesus had to be blamed and Jesus had to be, to be Mm -hmm. executed. And he said, you know, better for one man to die than for the entire nation to perish. So (laughs) everything you just described,
0: all the sort of, ramifications of what happens when we scapegoat and the mimetic crisis that we're involved in. I think every listener is kind of like, yeah, we've sort of lived that for the last five years. Um, <laughs> and do you have any insights on the last several years of the political landscape that sort of is like, oh, yeah, you know, if you know memetic theory, you, this is not a surprise to you at all. I mean, any thoughts or insights that you have that have stood
1: out to you? Well, it's been brutal. I mean, it's been, (laughs) I feel like mimesis has just been on the rise and the scapegoating has been accelerating for the last five years. And I think one of the things that we saw in 2016 was that there was a mimetic crisis that was brewing under the surface while, you know, in the national media, right, everything's just great. And, you know, it came above the surface when, to many people's surprise, Trump was elected. And, wasn't that big of a surprise to me because I I think there was a memetic crisis and, and confusion, but nobody was willing to recognize it. And the level of sort of shock and surprise that we witnessed in 2016 is, you know, totally consistent with the way that many people have responded to these kind of situations throughout history, where you know, all of a sudden the blame is placed on on everybody, right? It's Russia, it's this, it's that. Mm-hmm. Like we have to find some explanation for why this happened that is outside of ourselves, in other words. So like nobody is actually willing to have the conversation yeah. internally, right? About like what's going on in this country, right? What's happening? So like a lack of willingness to actually look at like why certain people are frustrated and yeah. what's going on, right? And then of course, you know, Trump is a president that seems to understand scapegoating very well. <laughs> like he's you know, it seems to be part of the way that he operates. And then the greatest irony of all is that he himself then becomes a huge scapegoat for many people as, you know, leaders typically are. I think Gerard said one time, like when we elect a leader, we're electing a future scapegoat or something like that, Hmm. which has become another way to deflect the serious self-reflection that needs to be done. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen, I could go on and on and on about this. I mean, I've, I've joked that I'm trying not to have too many conversations about politics because I mean I might have to write a book that applies this idea only to politics and if I can time it to come out in 2024 maybe that'll be uh, a be a good thing but yeah there's just there's so many there's so many implications of this. Well I do have one follow up to what you just said
0: I can look back and even at the time when Trump turned out to be elected I didn't expect him to win but it wasn't a surprise to me but I'm wondering from your vantage point understanding memetic rivalry and romantic desire and all of this probably a lot better than I
1: did five years ago. Why wasn't it a surprise to you? Well, I think there's probably a couple of reasons. I mean, for one thing, I've never really lived in a very homogeneous environment. You know, I've sort of always been sort of surrounded by people on the right and the left and, and just sort of listened to many, many different people. And I think that kind of help temper the surprise a little bit, right? When you're just exposed to more opinions and more voices, right? And I've always made an effort to do that. So that's certainly part of it. I think that there had just been a lot of things brewing for eight years that people didn't have any kind of outlet for. And it was extremely energizing to find somebody Mm -hmm. who sort of represented or sort of symbolized a lot of the frustrations and a lot of the anger and I mean, So I despite think- that he was basically an upper class, I don't know if he's
0: a billionaire, but, you know, super millionaire, it didn't matter to the common folk
1: because they aligned with him. I don't think that really mattered. And he yeah. did something that's really interesting that and he sort of managed to somehow pull off that I'm kind of like you and I share your frustrations and he, he managed to like pull that off, right? And that's well, when very you, when you powerful. bumble through
0: political speeches, people are like, oh, he's he's not all polished. He is okay to make mistakes. He's he's willing to be wrong and say stupid things. And like, yeah, no, there's a relatability to that.
1: There's a total relatability, right? It's like it's like yeah. when people can um like it's like reality TV. I think when people can straddle the line between, you know, what I call in the book celebristan or those external models Mm -hmm. and the internal models when they're kind, when they can straddle that line and, you know, make, make you feel that, well, they're not like me. He's got a lot more power and authority and money than I do. But in many ways, I feel this strange sense of solidarity that's a powerful combination. And I think that's what happened. And I talk in the book, I mean, another little hypothesis I have is, is I think the apprentice contributed. More than anybody is willing to admit to why he was invested with a lot of the um, power and authority that he was. You know, he ran this show for many, many years, one of the most popular shows on television that was essentially a resolution of a memetic crisis in every single episode. Every episode is a memetic crisis that is resolved with him sort of playing the role of a high priest walking in the room, sitting in the middle of the table and telling somebody they're fired. And one way to think about that is that, okay, the scapegoat's gone. We can all get back to work, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Subliminally, I think that almost invested him with a sense of, I mean, I I dare even say like sacred power, right? To solve problems that was internalized. And I don't even know if we know the extent to which that's happened.
0: Yeah. Well, man. This conversation go on like double, and i want, I have a few other questions I want to ask, but it's so interesting to me to think about the way politics has worked, and Trump is clearly has clearly been a scapegoat of a kind and you know it's interesting you said that any politician that we elect is sort of a scapegoat in some fashion, which also you know brings to mind the fact that we don't actually kill scapegoats anymore I mean those rare circumstances do happen, but trump wasn 't killed he was voted out of office, all right? It wasn't like he was eliminated, I should say. So eliminating the scapegoat isn't really happening. And I'd listened to your audiobook and then, you know, you were generous enough to send me a copy and I was skimming through it in preparation for this. And it turned out that there's only like two pages on this topic, but I wanted to ask you about it, which has to do with these inventions that society has come up with to mitigate the negative consequences of mimesis. And one of them is a scapegoat mechanism. And the second is the market economy. And I just wanted to kind of, you know, you can explain that a little bit for our listeners because I've read your book. So why is the market, free exchange, market economy, however you want to put it, a sort of second invention beyond scapegoating that has helped us quell violence?
1: Wow. Okay. So this is, um, this is pretty complicated, but uh, (laughs) so, and I, by the way, I don't really have an answer, but. It'd be fun to you know chat about it a little bit. But with if your... I ask you why, you
0: don't have to answer that. Go ahead and explain sure. it. And I just have some follow ups. Yeah.
1: Sure. Sure. I mean, I, I'm happy to speculate, and I'll, I'll throw sure. my hat in the ring uh, with with some ideas. So, you know, Gerard said pretty clearly that in you know, the scapegoat mechanism. You could almost think of it as a social innovation in a sense. Not that it's—I don't mean innovation in a positive sense of the word, because you know scapegoats were killed and tortured. But it was a social innovation that seemed to have allowed human beings to not destroy themselves, you know, to allow societies to be preserved and to allow the building up of institutions. So in that sense, Gerard sees the scapegoat mechanism as part of what allowed early societies to evolve and to grow. I mean, he's basically saying that there's some underlying violence that is at the heart of cultural institutions. Mm-hmm. He says there was a founding murder. They're even sort of sustained by this recurring violence that kind of sustains institutions. He also speaks in one of his later books, I of his Evolution and Conversion. He's asked about the modern sort of market economy and he views it as a double-edged sword. You know, he views it as, I think technology is very similar to this, as a way to diffuse mimetic desire while at the same time exacerbating it. So he views it as kind of a tool that it, at the very least has probably prevented physical conflict at least, right? It's prevented some of the old mechanism. Like, as you said, like we don't typically stone anybody anymore. It happens in some countries or, you know, Trump wasn't, you know, dragged out of the office and, and killed or anything like that. But the modern market economy, he says, provides ways for people to constantly channel their mimetic desire into new things all the time. You know what? It could be anything, it could be NFTs. It could be like, we we just keep finding and partly due to human creativity, ingenuity and entrepreneurship. We just keep finding more things in abundance to channel our mimetic desire to, as opposed to 1500 years ago, you know, you have a small town and you have a mimetic crisis and there are scarce resources and, People fight over them. And they didn't have the the economy in the way that we have it right now. So in that sense, it's been a positive development. I say in the book, like, well, the mechanism doesn't seem to be working as well as it did anymore, just as of late. I mean, there seems to be a lot of in part of it, it only works when people actually sort of believe in it. And it's the same is true with scapegoat mechanism, right? If you know it's happening, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And I'm noticing a loss of trust in the way that we typically have, have thought of markets and the economy. And that can be due mm-hmm. to a lot of things, right? Corruption, crony capitalism, you name it. Yep. And I tend to think that something's about to give. And I'm not sure if it's functioning anymore as a diffuser of conflict. In fact, it might even be leading to, to some conflict. So I think that it's going to have to evolve. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the market or capitalism is going to have to evolve. It might be that politics has to evolve. you know, I speculate about a number of things, but I'm not sure if three or 400 years from now, we're going to be able to operate the way that we operate now.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I want to give you my responses to that because I'm listening to your book and I'm like, oh man, I got to have him on my podcast. And then I get to this little section and I'm like, no, I definitely have to call him up and ask him because we have to talk (laughs) about the market economy. Of course, you know, as a diehard free marketer, I half wonder and Maybe the overly simplistic version of my response is, well, they're just not doing market economy right. Mm -hmm. But that's too simplistic and naive. My thoughts on that are there are a number of things that drive us to desire more and more. And I don't know if that can be blamed on the market economy or could it be blamed on, or maybe not blamed, but could it be explained by that our market economy is engineered right now over the past good 60 to 80, eh, maybe 100 years to fulfill what people want in a way that is, it's it's not really capitalist, it's more consumerist. That fulfilling our desires is the only thing that the economy has sort of been sort of prepped to do. And by that, I mean sort of like the Keynesian aspect of like, well, we can have what we want. There's no real thing as scarcity. We can print money if we want to. We can We don't have to postpone gratification in order to receive things. So like the reverse of you know, reaping what you sow. You sow and then you later reap. It's been kind of reverse. We can have what we want and we can pay for it later. And there, maybe that's what's happening is that there is a, we're going to end up paying for this and something's going to give, something's going to replace a market economy or maybe tweak it or maybe in a bad way, supplant it. And we actually go backward. There's that aspect as well. So I'm kind of wondering if the economy isn't really a market economy, although maybe that's the best way to describe it for now but that it's a consumer mindset economy and that we're going to have to hit some hard times to realize that, oh my gosh, we've been doing this all wrong because that is not how we find deep fulfillment. That is not how we actually acquire wealth and prosperity in a real lasting
1: way. Well, I totally agree. And I'm glad you mentioned the distinction there with consumerism and capitalism. I totally agree. You know, we're printing money, like at some point we're going to have to pay the price if this is the way that we operate. And I don't know if you noticed in the last chapter of the book, but when I'm talking about engineering desires, I mean, it's really a shot at Keynesianism and a Keynesian approach, right? It's like, oh, you know, we can just keep this up. We can keep printing more, we can keep calibrating everything in just the right way to make sure that everybody's happy. And Adam Curtis has a great documentary, Century of the Self, and then more recent one called Can't Get You Out of My Head, right? He's kind of talking about, this dynamic where you know we just engineering happiness machines, right? And mm-hmm. people are constantly seeking happiness. And that if we just, you know, tweak everything the right way, kind of from the top down, then we can maintain this equilibrium. We won't never grow too fast or too slow. Yeah. That's a major problem. And you know, many people have scapegoated the markets themselves. I think that's also part of what's going on right here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's an easy target. Well, you know, capitalism's broken, let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I'm very much of the mindset that, no, we can certainly improve the way that things are being done right now, but that's probably going to have to start with us. And I I very much have more of a bottom-up approach to that, right?
0: And I think you and I,
1: we've chatted
0: before and we're in a lot of alignment on this type of issue. And the, the market economy, in my mind, is just not serving human flourishing anymore. It seems to be like what you said, like it's set up to what was the name of the documentary you just mentioned? Century of the Self.
1: Century of the Self. I'm like, that's
0: totally, that's totally right. Like, that is what we've been primed to believe is that it's all about ourselves, not it all about. When do I say it? I mean, like, our lives are should be about ourselves and our greatest desires. You know, we need to fulfill them, pursue them, whatever that is, but we're not taught to understand something we probably don't have time to talk about here, but like you call deep fulfillment Mm -hmm. in life. And the economy is not, first of all, it's not designed, but it hasn't been evolving in the past 100 years in a way that facilitates that. And part of that is, you know, maybe the lack of sound money. You kind of speculate that possibly cryptocurrency can contribute to a better mechanism or better innovation, I should say. And for different reasons, I, I agree. So yeah, there's a lot to like think about as like, but anytime a libertarian reads, a libertarian like me reads, you know something's going to replace the market economy to help this. I'm
1: like, wait, what? No,
0: <laughs> the market economy is great. <laughs> we don't want to yeah. replace it with well, anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't know if I said replace or evolve. I mean, I, I, if I said replace, I probably should have said evolve, right? Like yeah. Something's right. going to happen over the next ten years. I'm pretty confident in, in that. And one of the important things here that I have to say because this is Christian libertarian podcast is you know, I really think that it only works in the context of ethics and sort of some fundamental shared values and and an agreement on some very basic things, right? And that's part of the problem. And, you know, one of the, I think, most important passages in the Gospels, at least, are, you know, when when Jesus is kind of, you know, put in this position of answering the question about paying taxes, you know, rendering to Caesar, what is Caesar's? And my good friend, Jeff Barr has, has, written, you know, some pretty fascinating stuff on this, right. This, this kind of tension, right. It's like this choice of an either, or, you know, he kind of says is wrong in that passage, you know, and that Jesus, you know, it's typically sort of interpreted like Jesus is saying that it's totally illicit to pay taxes and stuff like that. But what most people don't realize in that passage is that, you know, his response to the question that he's getting trapped in is to see the coin kind of a funny response right he wants to see the coin the coin is a denarius and it's the one it's a very special coin that caesar had printed with his face on it and had said you know i am the god sort of son of augustus to be worshiped and he looks at the coin and says you know render unto caesar what is caesar's and and to god what is god's well (laughs) anybody would have understood that to mean like there was very like subversive, right? And like subtle sedition in that comment. And it wasn't just like, you know, it's all good, like pay Caesar and then go do your thing. It's basically like we haven't, especially in modern day America, we have a problem right now that we haven't figured out how to integrate people with religious beliefs. And I think there's a very low level of literacy when it comes to, kind of virtues, how to make sense of how we're to behave in a market economy, what are we to make sense of, mm. of, of all of these things. That's part of what I do in my day job at the Sioka Center for Principled Entrepreneurship. We're just trying to encourage people to think more deeply about this yeah. so that we don't get trapped in these overly simplistic, reductionistic sort of either or things. Because I, I mean, eventually that's just how you end up making scapegoats. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I looked up the page in your book or you're talking about, you're right. You didn't say that the market economy ought to be replaced or anything, but you were saying that it, that and the scapegoating mechanism may not be able to help us minimize crisis in the future. So forgive me for uh, attributing something there for a second, but- Everybody else yeah. already already tuned out. Yeah, well- <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if they've listened this far, they're probably like, wait, what? <laughs> they want to hear my take. But no, it's, uh, well, all the details are in the book wanting by Luke Burgess listeners. You need to go get this book. It is amazing. If you're a listener, the narrator is an amazing narrator for it as well. Luke, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're on a timeline here, so I want to respect what you have coming for the rest of your day. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on to be part
1: of the conversation. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Doc. I really, really enjoyed it.